Welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And the show is getting ready for takeoff. So fold up your tray tables, straighten your seat backs, and stay focused because we're about to head airborne and get going with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, your rabbi, that's me, reminding you that last week, I spoke a little bit about uh, the Tower of Power, the introduction of socialism. Uh, socialism did not enter the world with the 1918 Russian Revolution, and it didn't enter the world with the French Revolution. Uh, it's been around for a very long time, and uh, I lay out its origins in a program called Tower of Power. Uh, it was available or meant to be available for you on sale last week, special price for listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, but uh, there was a glitch and uh, it did not get on sale in a timely manner, but it is right now. So remember the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And during this week, I was speaking in Scottsdale, Arizona and in Los Angeles, California, and um, and so I decided that instead of doing a regular show, what I was actually going to do is let you enjoy uh, the first part of Tower of Power. I hope you do enjoy it. It's it's really one of the most profound and powerful teachings that I've done. It's something I'm very very happy with, simply because we're living right now in literally an epidemic of socialism. That's what's happening, certainly in the United States and also in much of Europe, other parts of the world as well. Uh, socialism is becoming the religion of the elite. And that means that the rest of us really do need the intellectual ammunition to combat it and I hope ultimately defeat it because upon such defeat depends our future and that of our children. So we're going to go ahead and uh, go with that show right now. Hope you enjoy it. I'll, I'll be back with you in, uh, in about 10 minutes or so. Enjoy. This particular Torah teaching begins with an extraordinary set of circumstances. Since 1927, Pan American Airlines had been an absolute symbol of American dominance. Pan Am opened up air routes all around the world with the most innovative things. Their clipper flying planes across the world uh, their round-the-world tickets, all of these things were Pan Am, and their ubiquitous blue globe symbolized America almost everywhere. You might remember its futuristic terminal at John F. Kennedy Airport, Terminal Number 3, which opened in 1960, very dramatic-looking building. Now, you know how New York is laid out, right? It's on a grid, streets and avenues, streets running crossways east and west, avenues running north and south, and buildings are located on this grid. And by and large, in most cases, uh, you can look down a street, and that's where the word the concrete canyons came from. It really looks like that. You can see almost all the way across Manhattan on many streets. You can see dozens and dozens of blocks up many avenues. But there's one exception. There's one exception. There is a building that is planted outside the grid, right in the middle of an avenue. Its address is 200 Park Avenue, 
but of course it was known for many years as the Pan Am Building. When it was built in 1963, Pan Am Airlines was at the height of its prestige and its financial success. And on the side of the building, on the north and south sides of the building, right at the top was the word Pan Am, front and back, and on the ends of this building, the blue globe of Pan Am, and at the time it was the largest office building, the largest commercial building in the entire world. It absolutely towered over everything in the vicinity. Sixty floors up, there was nothing that high in the immediate vicinity in 1963. And astonishingly, if you look at the graph of Pan Am's share price and the fortunes of the company, you can almost pinpoint the decline of Pan Am to the moment its new building opened facing New York and the four points of the compass, 60 stories above the city. It's extraordinary, particularly when you take it in the context of some other similar incidents. Back in 1999, the German bank Deutsche Bank recognized that there is a strange curse that seems to attach itself to tall buildings. Somehow bad luck comes to tall buildings. That's how they put it. Have you noticed that words like luck and coincidence are often used to conceal what is really going on? You know, when somebody works really hard for a really long time and pulls himself up from many failures and downturns, people sometimes say, oh, you're so lucky. It wasn't luck. Using that word sometimes conceals the reality. People sometimes say, oh, what a coincidence when they see something synchronous, something happening that happens at the same time as something else. Well, I'll mention that Hebrew, the Lord's language, has no word for coincidence. And that's no coincidence. <laughs> the reason is that the idea of Hebrew as the Lord's language is that if a word doesn't exist in Hebrew, there's a very good reason the word doesn't exist. And that's because the concept doesn't exist. And so Hebrew has no word for coincidence. Coincidence just conceals and obscures and camouflages a lesson that needs to be learned. Nobody pays any attention to something that people say, oh, that's just a coincidence. But if you realize that it's not a coincidence, well, then it is worth paying attention to. So building tall buildings seems to bring bad luck. Well, yes, except it isn't exactly luck. Back to Deutsche Bank's observation. In 1875, at the southern tip of Manhattan, Western Union completed a grand, enormous headquarters. It was so big and so brightly lit at night that it served as a beacon for ships coming into New York Harbor. Exactly a year after the building opened, somebody knocked on the door. It was Alexander Graham Bell. He had just invented something called a telephone. And William Orton, who was the head of Western Union, which you'll remember dominated communication, they virtually owned the telegraph, which was the version of the internet of those days. That was, all, that was the way of communicating. And Alexander Graham Bell knocks on the door of William Orton and says, I don't have the money to develop this incredible device that allows people to not have to communicate in dots and dashes like Morse code, but actually allows people to communicate by means of words and phrases and just talking. And uh, William Orton turned it, turned it down, and here's what he said. He said, this thing you call a telephone, it's got too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication.
Well, Alexander Graham Bell said, well, okay, if you don't want to do it, I guess I'll have to do it myself. So he started a little company called AT&T. Well, it didn't take long before the Bell Company, which was the forerunner of the beginning of AT&T, totally superseded Western Union, which essentially ceased to be significant in the world of communications. Funny, just after they opened their building. What was that about? Well, it's not the only example, of course. I want to tell you about a century later than the Western Union story. Funnily enough, AT&T built their New York headquarters. It was a similar mistake, I'm afraid. They moved into a massive postmodern skyscraper designed by Philip Johnson with a scooped roof that sort of looked a little bit like a headstone, which perhaps wasn't altogether inappropriate. And uh, at the time, the chairman of AT&T was a guy called Charles Brown. Uh, he was under court order, you may remember, to split up AT&T. It was Judge Green, you may recall the name. And uh, he had to decide, should AT&T keep long distance or should they keep the baby bells which provide that last mile of connection to every home in America? And just after building this grand new edifice, uh, Charles Brown said, well, why don't we keep long distance? Now, as you know, if you are paying more than about five cents a minute on your long distance today, you're being ripped off. There's no money to be made in long distance. Do you know where the action's at? The last mile to the house. And that's why all the successful communication companies you know of out there are either directly the baby bells or the outgrowths of the baby bells that grew and formed new companies. AT&T virtually unknown. As a matter of fact, it was bought and absorbed by another company called SBC Communications, and AT&T would now be totally gone were it not for the fact that SBC discovered it's kind of hard to brand a new name, and they went back to the AT&T name just because people recognized it. But there again, critical errors, terrible mistakes, made just after the construction of enormous skyscrapers. And it's, it goes again and again. The story you, you keep on hearing, Gordon Metcalf was the chairman of Sears Company when Sears opened its Chicago headquarters. And that was in 1973. And here's what Gordon Metcalf said. He told the crowd at the opening of this 110-story building, being the largest retailer in the world, we thought we should have the largest headquarters in the world. He seemed quite oblivious to the fact that Sears was already sniffing the presence of retailers like Kmart and Penny. Well, here's the funny thing. As the Sears Tower in Chicago opened, Sears stock began a decline from which it never recovered. There's plenty more examples like this, and I won't even discuss the World Trade Center, which was created by a government entity called the Port Authority. But you get the idea. Is every tall building doomed? No, of course not. That is what we are exploring in this Torah teaching. But the central observation seems to be that in God's biblical blueprint, great things do not follow in the wake of the construction of really tall buildings. And that does seem to be something of a pattern. Well, I, I do hope that you enjoyed that. I really do. And uh, what we're going to do is go right on to the next cut on this, um, on this discussion. And uh, 
Before we do that, though, as always, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look for Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, and uh, you will find that, yes, especially for devotees of this show, uh, those of you to whom I feel particularly close by virtue of the opportunity of sharing meaningful time together every single week. Oh, and by the way, a whole lot of you came up to me at my various uh, speeches around the country this past week and told me you are regular listeners. I can't tell you how that warms the cockles of my heart. Uh, it truly, <laughs> it is, it's true. I really do enjoy meeting those of you who are regular listeners to the show. So to those of you who came up to me in Scottsdale and in Los Angeles mentioning that you hear the show regularly, thank you for listening and thank you for telling me about it. Uh, the website again, rabbidaniellappin.com. So uh, let's carry on with the next cut Reminding of this Reminding you how the world teaching. really works, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And there's no way to understand how the world really works if you don't get the, the seductive appeal of socialism. And that's really what we're talking about in this excerpt from the teaching entitled Tower of Power Decoding the Secrets of Babel. Hope you enjoy. Now, what's going on here? And everybody likes to use some kind of system to understand reality. My very first baseball game in the United States, I, I just arrived here. Um, I was playing ridiculously. I don't know why they took me on, but they thought it would be funny, I suppose. I came from a country where we played cricket. Now, to give you an idea, um, Cricket is a, is a game that makes watching grass grow seem like mind-numbing excitement. <laughs> and so they told me, take this big stick and go and stand there. So I took the stick and went to stand there. Some guy climbs up on a hill and starts hurling a projectile at me. In an attempt at self-defense, I raised this, this club, and by some miracle, I managed to deflect the projectile. And I'm so relieved when all of a sudden everyone starts yelling at me, run, run, run. Where? I don't know where. I look around. I see some guy beckoning to me. So I run to him. I'm on my way. They yell, drop the bat, drop the bat. I thought it was a club. Okay, fine. Anyway, to put it mildly, um, I didn't have very much fun that day, and I'm not sure anyone else did either. And it really served as a lesson for me. It taught me that life isn't much fun if you don't know the rules. In trying to understand the totality of all existence, I have depended on what I was taught by my father and what he was taught by his father. And that is what we think of as the instruction manual printed and produced by the great manufacturer himself. An instruction manual that provides a guide to safe human life on this planet. Something that makes it possible to understand the rules of all aspects of our existence. In using this combined set of oral and written directions called the Torah, I thought to myself, how do I go about trying to understand what appears to be the curse of the skyscraper? And obviously, if tall buildings seem to mysteriously predict the extinction of the organizations that created them, then surely there is only one place to go and look. Here's the one place. Tall building leading to problem. <laughs> Only one place. Chapter 11 of the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. 
nine mysterious verses that provide us with a blueprint that applies today just as it will apply tomorrow, that applies in Babel just as it'll apply in America and anywhere else. Please don't mistake the Torah for a history book or an anthology of ancient myths and legends. It is a textbook of reality for today and tomorrow. But let's do a quick review of what brings us to Genesis chapter 11. Because nothing in the written Torah stands in isolation. And so what we need to do is begin to take a look at what leads up to the Tower of Babel and the story we're looking at. So let's run through the first 10 chapters of Genesis in 90 seconds, shall we? Now, I I will tell you this, that if we were studying Genesis for two hours every week, it would take us four years to get to chapter 11. So I am compressing things a little bit. One of the ideas I had to try and compress things was to adapt to English usage uh, something from Hebrews. You know, Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. And I thought if I could do these 10 chapters leaving out the vowels, I'd get there ever so much more quickly. I tried it. It sounded a lot as if I was speaking Welsh. So I'm going to have to go with a slightly different system. Uh, Sixth day of creation, um, Adam and Eve, God's first conversation with humanity. We've had all everything else created already, earth, sun, moon, light, darkness, everything. And it's a sixth day of creation, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and conquer it. Now, of course, conquer does not mean annihilate or destroy. It's, that's not what it means. When a nation conquers another nation, it means redirecting that nation's productive capacity for its own purpose. You, when you conquer a nation, you don't destroy it. You defeat its defensive capability so you can then use the productive capacity of that nation for your purposes. And this is God's intent explicitly in nature. God says, conquer nature. Uh, recognize that nature can be very inhospitable. It can be uh, perilous to human health. And when we think of nature, when the Bible refers to nature in that sense, believe me, it's not talking about a national park system. It's talking about a fever-ridden swamp or a dry desert. It's talking about conditions not good for human beings. And so God says, conquer it. However, that Hebrew word, kovesh, meaning conquer, is something that requires cooperation. It is clear that if one human being is dropped into a desert or dropped into a swamp, his survival is very unlikely. But if along with him he has a whole lot of friends and there's an entire team and they're able to little by little establish a foothold there and begin to push back the desert or push back the swamp, a lot of people working together can conquer nature. And that's exactly God's intention, to make certain that his children collaborate and communicate and cooperate and through that begin to imitate God and become creators themselves. We can only do that by cooperating. And in the same way, most of us are filled with joy whenever we see our children doing kindness to one another, working together with one another, not squabbling or wreaking havoc on one another. And so God in heaven is just as happy when his children also work together and cooperate with one another. And God gives us a gift that helps us to cooperate with one another. That gift of allowing us to cooperate and collaborate and create with one another is exactly that God created us in his image. Now, what does that phrase really mean? 
You see, no animals cooperate and collaborate. Nature has given some species instinctive symbiotic relationships where two species benefit one another, like the, that little fish that the shark allows into its mouth to clean its teeth. The shark gets clean teeth, the little fish gets an easy meal. But it is important to see how different is human cooperation. So how do we collaborate in a uniquely human way? Well, saying that we are created in God's image is knowing that just as God is unique, each and every one of us is unique as well. We each have different talents, different interests, different strengths and weaknesses. That is what makes us need one another. And God wants us to need one another because needing one another means we'll work with one another. And if everyone in our community was exactly the way we are, life would not only be boring because you could never hear a joke you didn't already know, but nobody could supply you with the things that you couldn't make yourself because nobody would have any talents and skills that you didn't have. God is unique, and he created each of us to be unique. Interestingly enough, where do you think God placed the symbol of our uniqueness? On our fingers, that's where. What do fingers represent on our bodies? Our creative abilities. And that's why it's important to understand that fingerprints are spiritual. They're not biological or physical. You don't believe me? Let, let me prove it to you. Let me tell you that there is a remarkable phenomenon. And I'll tell it to you in the form of a question. Identical twins are identical, right? We call them identical twins because they have the same DNA. They have absolutely nothing different between one another. So therefore, if I were to ask you, do identical twins have identical fingerprints as well or not, what would you say? You would be very normal if you said, well, since they both have the same DNA, there is no source for uh, information, genetic data, to produce different fingerprints. And so obviously you would say that identical twins have the same fingerprints, but they don't. That is the amazing thing. Identical twins have different fingerprints. And as of the time I am recording this Torah teaching right now, science has no explanation for how it is possible for identical twins to have different fingerprints. There is a slew of different theories. Nobody can really understand how identical twins have different fingerprints. But the answer from me, your rabbi, is very simple, and that is that fingerprints are spiritual, not biological. DNA and genetic data is only biological, but fingerprints is an expression of our unique spiritual creativity imparted in its own unique special way to each and every one of us. That's what being touched by the finger of God means. And so God is really saying, you are unique, and the mark of your uniqueness, the way in which you are different from every other human being that ever lived, is found on your creative ability, on your fingers. And so God is saying, be like me. Each of you is unique, just as I am. And each of you is a creator, just like I am. I'm the giant creator, the greatest creator, the creator with a capital C. You're a little creator, but you're still a creator. Go out and create in your own unique way. And that is why that back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 20, we meet a guy called Yaval. He's the world's first cattleman. Then in verse 21, we meet Yuval. 
He's the fellow who discovers how to make music. And ancient Jewish wisdom does inform us that it was not rap music. (laughs) I'm just kidding. At least to begin with. Then in verse 22, we meet Tuval Kayan, who discovers the wonders of iron and metal. Everybody trying to be unique by creating in his own unique way, and thus filling the many varied needs of all the other people around. In other words, we complement each other. If you are a terrific dairy farmer, and I grow the very best vegetables in the country, then we interact with each other in order that both of us should have tasty cheese and terrific carrots. This is a gift of God that lets us benefit from catering to one another's need. We both will have achieved more by collaborating than we could possibly have achieved independently and alone. It's God's way of incentivizing us to behave like brothers and sisters, children of a loving God. Well, that takes us along to the next major story as as the picture of the first 10 chapters of Genesis unfolds. Cain and Abel, and Cain's name in Hebrew, Cain, Abel's name in Hebrew, Hevel. Hebrew names throughout the Bible always mean something. You absolutely have to check out the Hebrew meaning of everybody's name, because everybody's name isn't just a name. There are no Agathas in the Bible. Every name has a specific meaning, and you need to know those meanings. Did I mention that everybody needs a rabbi? Uh, good. Um, in that case, uh, I'll just tell you that Cain, Cain means acquisitiveness, a desire to acquire. Hevel means zero. What more appropriate name for someone who dies without ever having had a chance to impact the world? There's nothing left of Hevel. Abel is no more. In fact, a zero. Cain, acquisitiveness. Well, yes, I think that would be a fair way to describe somebody who was not satisfied with inheriting half the world from Father Adam. He wanted to inherit the entire world. And so he eliminated the other person. Uh, It's too bad Cain didn't have a rabbi. Could have saved him a whole heap of trouble. A rabbi would have told him that wealth and health comes from cooperating with other people, not eliminating them. I do hope that you're enjoying it. That was the second cut of the teaching, Tower of Babel, or Decoding the Secrets of Babel. And uh, this really it does explain the origins of socialism and its strange, seductive appeal, particularly to the hearts and minds of intellectuals and the thought makers and idea generators of society. Why they fall for this? Well, that's what we're going to try and understand. Meanwhile, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, head over there and uh, read more about the Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, on special price this week for you devoted and very appreciated and, listeners uh, of the here Rabbi comes Cut number three of the teaching, Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. Uh, There are actually a total of nine cuts in this teaching, but uh, time is always limited, and I know that you invest time seriously in the Rabbi Daniel Appen show, and I certainly don't want to trifle with your time, so I'm just going to uh, let you uh, have three of those sections now. If you do enjoy it and you do want the rest, well, you know exactly what to do, rabbidaniellappin.com. But now let's dive right into the third cut 
of Tower of Power. Enjoy. And then we arrive at the next big story in the first 10 chapters of Genesis, the account of Noah and the Great Flood. And there again, we're told through the oral transmission that the flood came about because people were not collaborating with one another, not working with one another, not cooperating. They were abusing one another, using one another, stealing from one another. God decides enough of that. We need a fresh beginning. And out of the ark, eventually, after the flood, comes Noah and his wife and three sons and three daughters-in-law. And Noah is ready for a fresh start to humanity. And God says once again be fruitful and multiply bring forth abundance upon the earth and conquer it that's right the earth by itself will beat you if you stick to yourselves and you work selfishly but if you work together with other people and you cooperate with love anything can happen and then we arrive at chapter 10 and chapter 10 is the immediate chapter before the, the tower of babel and the sons of Noah have spread out. Their names are Shem, Cham, and Yefet. And we're just a chapter before the secrets of Babel and tall buildings is imparted to us in chapter 11. But we need to see the events that lead up directly to the story of Babel. And in chapter 10, we see Noah's three sons building their families and extending to children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and we are now given the genealogies of each of the three sons, Shem, Cham, and Yefet. By the way, in English, Yefet is often known as Japheth because the Hebrew letter Yud, which is the Y, is often transliterated as a J. For instance, the famous book about a man swallowed by a big fish is called the book of Jonah, but in Hebrew it's called the book of Yonah. So uh, Yefet, one of Noah's sons, Japheth is often how he's described. First of all, we hear about Yefet, and it culminates in verse 5 with the following words. By these were the islands of the nations divided in their lands, everyone after his language according to their families. Then we hear all about the next son. We hear about the son of Cham, and Cham has uh, a whole lot of descendants. And then in verse 20, we arrive at this sentence. It's going to sound very familiar. And these are all the sons of Cham after their families and according to their languages. And then we come to Noah's next son, third son, Shem. And Shem's descendants are listed. And finally, after they're all listed, we come to verse 31 in chapter 10. These are the sons of Shem according to their families and according to their languages. So there we have 70 families all spread out into 70 separate specialized groups, each group developing its own skills and talents, just as God had instructed Noah and his sons when they left the ark. Some were making music, some were learning to work with iron, others were growing things and developing agriculture, and so on. Essentially, they all learned the lesson of the flood. In the words of Benjamin Franklin on the eve of our own war of independence, if we do not hang together we shall most assuredly hang separately. So we see society advancing to the point where families are busy building their lives and doing all the things I've been speaking about. But although a family is obviously the building block of any successful culture, it can only be a building block of a social order. It cannot be the only thing there is. Families have to coalesce into something else. And the next logical thing that they can coalesce into is the tribe. And as we saw 
as the family is a major improvement over isolated human beings living alone, the family isn't enough, though. They become tribes. Similarly, the tribe, although obviously making for a far safer and a far more secure society than just a lone family all by itself, the tribe also suffers from fatal flaws. Tribes are what tribes have always been, a very limited way of defeating aloneness and isolation. The social organization of a tribe still used today in undeveloped societies found in Africa and parts of Asia, it brings no reliable conquering of nature. Tribal society does not seem to be an enormous success. Look, no African tribe has yet invented any labor-saving machine. And no Asian tribe has discovered a medical cure for anything. And Saudi Arabia still run along tribal lines with an accident of geology giving them almost limitless petrodollars, have yet to figure out how to manufacture a motor car. Tribal society does not really work well. If you were an early American Indian, being part of a tribe was undoubtedly better than being alone, but it certainly was not the answer to conquering nature and being able to live well with the least possible effort. Well, tribe... Tribe is better than being alone, but it hardly provides an answer to the question of how people should organize themselves into societies to make life better and to make it possible, ultimately, for people to devote less time to basically surviving. This primitive level of societal organization leaves the stage open for someone who will promise a new and brighter tomorrow. We meet this man in three mighty important verses that seem incongruously dropped in in the middle. But fortunately, the oral Torah makes sense of these three verses that, with my help, will leap out at you. I did mention everyone. Yeah. Uh, it's leap out at you with total clarity. Let me tell you the three verses that are plunked right down in the middle of telling us all the descendants of Noah in the section telling of Noah's son, Ham's children, chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Ham had a son called Cush. Cush had a son called Nimrod. He began to be mighty on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. People said, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. I want you to remember these weird and critical verses. And you've got to recognize the four things the verses I've just read tell us. Here they are. Number one, they introduce a guy called Nimrod. Number two, that he made some kind of revolutionary new beginning. In the words, he started to be mighty. What does the started mean? Number three, they tell us he was a hunter. Number four, they tell us that his kingdom was Shinar. So let's take a quick look at those. Nimrod. Remember I told you that every biblical name has an intrinsic meaning. You've got to know what the Hebrew meaning of every word is. Well, the Hebrew meaning of the word Nimrod is, he said, get down. I'm going to be above you. That's Nimrod. The second thing we were told is that there's a revolution in new beginning. Somehow Nimrod had a revolutionary idea. In Hebrew, we have many words for the word beginning. The word used in the text here, Hegel, means not just any new beginning, but a revolutionary beginning that breaks with established tradition upheld heretofore. What tradition is upheld heretofore against which Nimrod revolted? 
Well, it's the established tradition of a God who saved his great-grandfather Noah from the flood. Noah's son was Ham, Ham's son was Cush, Cush's son was Nimrod. Everybody knew that God was central to our understanding of the world, and Nimrod has a startling new revolutionary idea. We'll try this without God. The third thing that we're told is that Nimrod was a hunter. Duh. <laughs> God permitted the eating of meat after the flood. Everybody was hunting. Why should the verse tell us Nimrod was a hunter? Well, he was certainly hunting. But what the Torah is telling us about Nimrod is he wasn't hunting animals like everybody else. He was hunting people. Not to kill them because then he would have been called a murderer. So what was he doing? It's because he was seducing people into becoming almost enslaved to him, making them subservient to him, fulfilling his essence represented by his name, getting people to essentially follow his vision and elevate him through their willingness to be subservient. In other words, Nimrod, I said, get down. And finally, the fourth fact in those three verses that interrupt the genealogies of verse 10, his kingdom was Shinar. Why do we need to know that? Well, because every time there is a Nimrod-like epoch in biblical history, there will be some kind of representation of Shinar, some way of telling us that Nimrod is at work here, even if you don't actually see Nimrod himself. And that's it, everybody. That is the uh, first, that was the first three cuts of Tower of Power, decoding the secrets of Babel. Hope you enjoyed. The, uh, the, the full teaching is on a special price. Uh, it wasn't working properly last week. It is working properly now. So go for it at rabbidaniellappin.com. Also at rabbidaniellappin.com, you can write in. You can ask questions on the Ask the Rabbi. You can subscribe to Thought Tools and Susan's Musings and uh, even the weekly email of Ask the Rabbi. Lots of things available at rabbidaniellappin.com. Above all, it's an opportunity for us to hang out, for us to be together. Uh, did I mention the uh, television show as well? We have a daily television show where Susan and I do a teaching every day. And the best part of it is you can see it online. How do you do that? Well, go to our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Go to the TV show and you will be taken directly to the link where you can see it uh, any day you wish at any time of the day. So that takes us as far as we're going to go right now. So until next week, I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless.